Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and we uh, praise God for allowing us to be part of this, His ministry, not ours, His. May He be with you and us tonight. Looking to learn the Word of God, verse by verse, go to campus, uh, it's on the screen, and you can choose to hear, uh, we have about 10 or 12 uh, hour-long verse-by-verse studies through John and Hebrews up there right now, and some in Matthew, some in Romans. Uh, you can use campus to supp supplement your uh, Christian experience now, enhance your knowledge of the Word of God, uh, so go to campus for more information. Part of what we do at campus, which is not really popular, but uh, it is effective, is listen to the Word of God put to music. And uh, my daughter Mallory, she, who before becoming a Christian, uh, earned her way playing in the subways of uh, New York when she was studying music there. Uh, she, she, has, she has a lyric-laden approach to music. Her, her songs that are non-Christian are heavy and lots of lyrics. And, you know, I listen to those and I think, wow, that's a lot of words in a, in a little song. But it's interesting because when she became a Christian, God used that talent to help her put these... Uh, uh, word of God in the music as well. And it's not an easy task. And so once she came to know the Lord, she uh, began to put often strings of verses uh, that are in the Bible to song. So today we have four CDs containing somewhere between 13 to 17 verses uh, put to music each. Here's the deal. If you're looking for pop, Christian songs, save your money, go buy something on the top of the Christian charts. Yeah, but uh, the comparison of, of that type of music, uh, the type of music that we do here at campus and what goes on in, in Christian chart toppers is kind of like comparing Johnny Cash and his style to Britney Spears. Uh, they're two different genres, two different appeals, two different approaches. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, the Word of God is complex, and so putting it to music can be a complex issue, sometimes though very elemental. So these CDs provide exceptional compositions that tap in a different kind of, um, she hasn't done a rap one yet, I don't think, although one sort of rap it. Uh, but they, they have kind of uh, different flavors for different people's musical tastes. Anyway, they're available at www.hotm.tv, and we wanted to give you a sample of a few of them, just a few of the first, uh, not the whole songs, just a few of the songs, so check these out. Do 
this in remembrance of me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. challenging, uh, but nevertheless, they're available, and I, I believe they are very effective at helping you learn the Word of God. Go to hotm.tv if you're interested in picking those up. Speaking of in His words, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. After a few passes through the Word of God, it becomes manifestly clear that Christians are called to love. We are supposed to love. Uh, you can't help read the book without ending up knowing that that's really the apex of everything in Christianity is love. We have basic descriptions of love. 1 Corinthians 13 summarizes it well. It says, love suffers long, is kind. Love doesn't eat uh, envy or boast. It's not prideful. It doesn't behave badly. It doesn't seek its own welfare. It's not easily provoked. It thinks no evil, rejoices not in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and never fails. In a perfect world and in perfect people, we would see this type of love present at all times and in all places, wouldn't we? That is just not the case. So how are we supposed to understand this command to love, 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 love? What does it mean from a Christian perspective according to the Bible? Let me help explain. The best way is to look at that biblical model. Many people promote love, but kind of forget that it's manifested in a number of different ways throughout Scripture. We know that when it comes to parenting uh, or counseling people, that there are times to be tender, and we know that there are times to be really tough. I would suggest that, contextually speaking, there are five general areas where Christian love is presented in slightly different forms. The highest and the most important type of love Christians are to have is love for God. Uh, it, for him and his ways, it's a primary position over all other allegiances and relationships. 
Uh, it's the first great commandment. You know Deuteronomy 6.5. You've all heard it. Uh, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and all thy soul and with all thy might. So with this love firmly in place, the second application follows love each other. And under that, we have the first application in that category of loving believers first. Now, um, that is, I hate to put it this way, but that is like a, uh, we cannot negotiate on that at all. If people are in the church and they're in the body, the love has to be there whether you feel it or not, whether you want to or not. Uh, I mean, it's absolutely mandatory according to scripture, which is kind of paradoxical because real love couldn't be mandated, but nevertheless, it's, it is. Bottom line, because of our love for God, believers must humbly love other believers. That's the second place. Speaking to believers, Paul wrote in Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. I would strongly suggest that this should be read and should be kind of uh, punctuated this way. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, colon. There should be a colon there. And uh, with everything after that word being a description of love, including joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against there is no such, against there is no law. So then there's a third expression of love that ought to exist. In Christians and that's to love our neighbor and uh, whether they're believers or not and according to Jesus everyone is our neighbor but in the case of loving others a new application seems to apply Luke 10 Jesus tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves that's an interesting application that it talks about there when it comes to our next-door neighbor so in other words if we don't want trash thrown on our lawn we won't throw trash on their lawn it's a good Golden rule, do unto others. And loving our neighbors is, is a very big part of the scriptural edict. And hopefully through that love, we will be seen as salt and light and cities set on a hill that cannot be hid. And people will say, man, I kind of think I want to be a Christian. I like my neighbor so much. The fourth application of Christian love is a tough one because it's extended to our enemies. Listen to this. One, two, three, four. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do up to a new level. I like how Luke 6.35 says, it's kind of the same verse, but he adds, but love your enemies, 
and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. In the case of loving enemies, we are taken to a place where the love we express to God and to church and to neighbors and to others has a different application. While our love for God and believers and neighbors is always going to be based in truth, hopefully, the need for this is especially apparent when we love those who are enemies of the cross. When we come to about people who are not just our enemies, but they're enemies of, uh, of the cross, you see. And here we have our love for God intersecting with people who are enemies of him. And so it doesn't mean we condemn, but the highest form of love we can express to people who are enemies of the cross is based in straight up truth delivered plainly. So in our day and age, such applications of love are often called intolerance. And I would suggest it's about as intolerant uh, of sharing truth with somebody who's an enemy to God uh, in a straight, plain, direct way as it would be intolerant for us to scream at a child to get out of a busy street. I don't think it's intolerant. I think it's a means to let them see. So we love God. We love believers. We love our neighbor. We love enemies. In truth, even if it seems intolerant. Having said that, before we go to our message tonight, I want to take a moment and give you an update on our attempt to return to local TV here in Utah. This is the final chapter. On Thursday of last week, I received an email from the manager of the station, and a, almost simultaneously, I received a phone call from the owners. Both communications let me know, in no uncertain terms, Heart of the Matter will never return to TV20. In my uh, gentle conversation with the owner, I asked him why, and the response was something to the effect is, you, why does it really matter? You just need to know that the decision has been made. And I thought that was a little strange, and so I said, you know, I, I do respect your right to that decision, but don't you think after seven years of, of weekly programs, of never missing on paying our bills to you, or uh, in full and on time, and of being a ministry that, that certainly was able to reach uh, the LDS community, that we deserve some sort of explanation. And he kind of paused and says, there's just too many problems. That was the, the reason. So uh, the call ended, and so has Aletheia Ministries' earthly relationship with TV20 of Salt Lake City, Utah. We thank all of you so very, very much for your letters and prayers and efforts to try to get us back on this local television station. Your support was very encouraging at the time we were making our appeals. So to Gentry, who came up with the idea to put an online letter where people could just type it out in a form. To John G., who made that link happen. To Wendy J. for the promotion and getting people to do it. And for all of you who took the time to write letters we have hundreds of them and prayers and calls. Thank you. Back in January, I entered into a long season of personal reflection, and I've had to shine a strong light, really, on my motives and my heart, even on many of my uh, theological positions. And it has, quite honestly, been a season of great spiritual and emotional and financial trial. What made it all so weighty was I could not, for the life of me, understand why this local TV station would so adamantly and continually reject our efforts at reaching the LDS, especially in light of the fact that we've apologized for my attacks on the local churches 
and we even changed courses by refocusing on the Mormon Christian debate. Because it didn't make any sense to me, I blindly assumed that it was just a matter of my learning patience, of letting God work, and of waiting on Him to both refine me and my person, and to then change the hearts of those who have been bent on keeping us off local television. Uh, I couldn't have been more blind or wrong in my assessment of the situation. Uh, in the end, I wound up being like a guy who um, cannot believe that his girlfriend doesn't love him anymore. Um, and I was blinded by the vision of what should be instead of what is. And I just could not see what is. And such blindness can serve to keep us from seeing or realizing what God has waiting for us around the corner. After hanging up with the owner on Thursday, I entered into one of the darkest nights of the soul I've ever experienced in my Christian life. Maybe you have had some of these dark nights of the soul yourself, and they can be triggered by almost anything, even things that are insignificant, it seems. I go through them intermittently, in part through the ministry trials and stuff, but this round was really horrible because I believe that God was indifferent to my existence, that my faith and patience and dedication to sharing truth with the Mormons was wasted. And I thought maybe talking to God is a worthless endeavor from this point forward, that I should just listen and keep my queries and petitions to myself. He does what he's going to do, so why, why bother? And from the heart and for a number of hours, I found myself absolutely resigned to a future of oblivion. And um, it's not that I lost belief in God at all or didn't think that he existed. I just didn't think that he had any use for me or this ministry or our desires to reach the LDS and others with truth. And it's not that I hated the Christians who opposed me either, but I saw them as members of a giant club to which I would never, ever be able to belong to. But I, how wrong and, and stupid and blind I have been to him and his ways. On Friday morning, I woke up to complete new light after more than 10 months. Praise God. And this light has illuminated our and my current path, invigorated our walk, and uh, perfectly clarified uh, what I was too blind to see over the past 10 months. So first, let me say farewell to the owners, managers, and staff of TV20. I love them. I hold no animus for their decision. I pray anyone who honors God will have the same heart toward them. It's time to let it all go. I say farewell to all the reverends and pastors, apologists, and evangelical congregates who have worked to keep me in a negative light and therefore the show off the air. I love you, I see you as my brothers and sisters, and pray all of God's blessings upon you in your respective walk. I do this because of the perspective the living God gave me early Friday morning after the dark night of the soul. First, he let me see that a return to TV 20 would have never worked. Smarter men and women realized this long ago, but I was oblivious to the reality. Let me give you some reasons why. First, had we returned, my every move would have been monitored and highly scrutinized. I would not have had the freedom I have had in the past to express myself, which I think was allowed in the past because they were so taken back that it was even happening. Uh, getting me off 
now they can say, you know, we're not going to let that happen again. But for the seven years, it was like, we've let this, this jackass in the building and now we can't get him out, you know? So anything I would do in the future would be squelched and every single questionable comment or opinion shared would be scrutinized. Secondly, I was reminded that he created me to speak and teach and seek and pursue the truth no matter what the cost. And that if we were put back into our former TV 20 setting, I would have either had to compromise this, um, who I am in him, that means I would have been a hypocrite, uh, or I would speak the truth and it would have been kicked off probably a week later. So, and then finally, he, he had me look around, literally in my mind, through our removal from 20, we, we, were, we moved out and, and created our own studio here. We created a place for us to congregate as a church. We were injected with an ambition to now obtain our own local television channel, to buy one in the future, somewhere, somehow. And, uh, and we can have a place where we can't be scrutinized and censored, but we'll be free to speak without fear of repercussion. It's completely liberating. So, so stupid sometimes, you know? So not only this, eventually we will have a sound exegetical Christian teachings in place 24 seven playing on whatever channel we're able to uh, obtain um, where we can, in, instead of just talking about Mormonism for an hour a week. And you wanted to go back, why, you know, the Lord sort of whispered to my conscience, I was ashamed, you know, my blindness at my personal drivers to get back what I thought I had lost, to have my way, to push for something that was never his will in the first place. It's a great lesson learned. He could see it all and gracefully, lovingly moved in spite of me. TV20 has served him and a number of others in tremendous ways. We praise him and sincerely thank all who were involved in it ever happening. But standing here today with his will and ways now firmly in my vision, I cannot imagine a return to that local station and completely agree with the management and ownership that heart of the matter will never be on TV20 again. Where will it be? Where are we headed? I know where we are headed, but I'm not gonna try to articulate it tonight, not at this point. Stay with us in prayer. Keep telling your friends about the program through social media. Get ready to be on the ground floor of an entirely new era of Aletheia Ministries. I will, however, say this. It begins with an intentional separation from all people who maintain non-biblical appellations present and thriving in American evangelicalism. It begins there. It continues with a relentless, crushing presentation of biblical truth for which we will not ever apologize. And then it is morphing into a diverse, multifaceted collective of people who are just flat out tired of religious stuff. Hang on to thy hats, my friends. Know that he is in charge. Know that while we will never be numerically significant, it's just not the biblical way. Uh, we will prevail in and through his strength and power as we have in the past. So while we see those evangelical leaders and people as part of the body and we'll always love them, we're putting our hand to the plow and not looking back. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we pray your spirit upon us in abundance and we thank you for it. We pray you'll be with those who are seeking that you will govern my mouth. 
you will in my heart, and you will help us to say those things you want us to say. Bless our staff, volunteers, audiences here, and throughout the world who will watch in archives, YouTube, and streaming. In Jesus' name, amen. As Christians, we have to admit that the doctrines we are taught to embrace can play a huge role in our worldview. We've been talking about Calvinism and Mormonism. We're in part three of that now. What I mean by this is if we take a room full of people and ask each of them, do you believe in Jesus? And they say, yes, I believe in Jesus. They would still be very different due to the religious doctrines that they have been taught, the religious doctrines that they have embraced. In that room of people, people could have been raised Southern Baptists, which will view the world and themselves in a certain way. Methodists, Nazarenes, cut their teeth on the holiness movement. Holy Rollers, I mean, it's endless. There are former hippies from the Calvary Chapel movement, Messianic Jews, Coptic Christians. The varieties go on and on and on, and all of those varieties play upon the individual and how they see themselves relative to God. So... Uh, all of them believe in Jesus, and they really do believe it, but my point is each of them would relate to the world in an entirely different way because of how they have been taught to see themselves in relationship to him. In other words, the person who believes because they were taught this way that they are a debased sinner and that they have absolutely no value or worth unless they earn that in the sight of God through repentance and holy living are gonna have a very different worldview and self-view than those people who um, are taught that they are a sinner, debased even, but that Jesus came and paid for everything and they are free in his grace. I've been having this conversation with friends of ours over dinner the other night. In other words, in matters of religion, doctrine and theology goes a long way in establishing not only an individual's worldview, but how they see themselves. Let me say that again, there's a graphic. In matters of religion, doctrine and theology goes a long way in establishing not only an individual's worldview, but the view they have of themselves. Let me introduce this principle through a true story from my high school years, please bear with me. I knew two girls from the same grade when I was in high school. One was named Debbie, the other was named Lucinda. Uh, Lucinda's name's changed a little bit. Debbie was raised to believe that she was all that, and I mean, she thought she was all that. Her dad owned a series of retail stores in Southern California. She lived on the water in the harbor. She drove at that time a Trans Am, and that was big back in the day, so shut up. And uh, from what I could tell in my interactions with Debbie, she sincerely believed that the world was created for her and all things were in her power. Uh, she was also raised LDS and had firmly established in her brain that she was sent a special spirit from a pre-existence here to earth and that she was uh, sent to a home of great affluence because she was so valiant. Admittedly, she was very good looking, gorgeous black hair, and uh, she seemed to believe she deserved the, these looks because she was a daughter of God. That was her worldview. Debbie floated through high school. She kind of reigned over the highest society kids. And uh, from what I experienced, seemed to have true kind of disdain for those of, of uh, different types of living. Here's my point. Debbie was raised to believe she was special and truly related to the world from this early indoctrination. Lucinda, on the other hand, a real person, sat behind, sat behind, 
in front of me in chemistry where I did nothing but draw. And I remember hearing around school that she had gotten really drunk uh, some place in the past and took on the entire football team at some kid's house. Now, uh, Lucinda was sort of an acquaintance of mine, and the story amazed me, and so I asked her if it was true. Also, being kind of angry, I didn't play football at that time. Uh, uh, <laughs> she said it was. She said the story was true. Now, as our year in chemistry passed, we got to know each other better, and I've always loved to kind of probe people's lives, and I learned that Lucinda was raised by a set of parents who absolutely thought she had no value. Uh, they treated her kind of as if she was absent, indifferently. Unfortunately for her, she had an older sister who was valedictorian of the school when we were freshmen, and, and they kind of expected that of her. She went on to a full ride at Stanford, and Lucinda uh, just was too rebellious. And so the parents never really saw any value in Lucinda. And tearfully, she even let me know, I'll never forget, that nobody in her family recognized her 15th birthday. It came and went. That's a big birthday. I mean, birthdays are big when you're a teenager. So came and went. Lucinda doesn't exist. So just like Debbie, Lucinda, at least up until I had contact with her, lived up to how she was made to believe she was. The philosophy presented to each girl about themselves, who they were, became sort of a map of how they both viewed God, the world themselves, and their purpose of life. We're just beginning to enter into our comparison of two philosophies of religion, both, I believe, errant, Calvinism and Mormonism. Calvinism, huge in the Christian world. Mormonism, big in this uh, state and other places. Let's start with the first principle in the comparison. In a summary of the teachings of Calvinism, we have what is called the TULIP, an acronym, T-U-L-I-P, with the T in the TULIP standing for total depravity. Conversely, Mormons teach that every single human being when born is a child of God. These two positions truly are at opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to explaining where fallen human beings are relative to holy God. So let me first talk about the notion of total depravity, which is typically misunderstood even by professing Calvinists. The reason it gets so confused is the two words, total and depravity, make it sound like Calvinists believe that all humans are wholly, abjectly, grossly depraved, like we are all the, are the most heinous child torturers on earth. Um, that's not the meaning of total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that men and women are as bad as they can possibly be, uh, which the term total depravity intimates, intimates. Nor does Calvinism teach that it's virtually un impossible for unsaved people to do good things. Calvinists believe that, that unsaved people can do good things. It merely means that every facet of human personality is corrupt and at odds with the purposes of deity. That's a better understanding. In other words, total depravity should never be equated to absolute depravity. If absolute depravity was the case, then we would all be trying to cannibalize each other. I mean, we'd be all be gnawing on each other's limbs because we were hungry at lunch and stuff. That's not what they, they mean. This is neither the reality nor the reform position. Total depravity means that from God's perspective, good cannot truly be seen as good 
unless it comes from the hands of someone who's doing his will, doing his will, and they can only know how to do his will if they have his spirit within them. To a Calvinist, if an unsaved man is helping a little old lady across the street, the act, while not totally depraved, is of no virtue because it is being done by a tainted hands, so to speak. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is a document created in Heidelberg, Germany, and serves today to instruct people who embrace Reformed theology on what it believes, makes it clear that good works are only those which are done from, to faith, from true faith according to the law of God and to his glory. I think we could interpret this to mean that non-Christians can do relative good works. Non-Christians can do relative good works to the Calvinists, meaning they are good relative to this fallen world and how it operates and runs, but they are not capable of doing anything of merit when it comes to pleasing or impressing God. Since Adam was created in God's image, three in one, and then because of sin he died spiritually, he and those who come after him are not spiritually inclined in our fallen state to do anything to reach out and know God. That's kind of the total depravity position. If God did not reveal himself in any way, then nobody would ever want to try to seek him. That, oh, that. In other words, we have nothing in the remaining operating parts of our person that seeks God, and if left to our own natural devices without God's influences, no one would pursue after him. So this is the view. Unsaved human beings are incapable of doing good without the influence of God first drawing them. Of all the five points of Calvinism, I tend to agree with total depravity and these explanations most. Unfortunately, as a result of this teaching, which I said has been misunderstood by many people, uh, pastors alike, there have been some really heinous approaches to reaching the lost by people believe humanity is totally depraved. That's when you see people holding signs saying, uh, you are going to hell, you sinner. It's based off this, uh, this first T uh, uh, idea in Christianity. Uh, I would suggest this type of appeal is at odds with the overall description of the good news found in the New Testament. Being raised on the idea of total depravity and retaining elements of the teaching in our persons might contribute to Christians walking about, head lowered, repeating the mantra, I'm just a sinner, I'm just a sinner, I'm just a sinner, and then they live up to their self-description. On the other hand, and in the face of five-point Calvinism, Joseph Smith introduced his worldview, which stands counter to the biblical understanding. He told people that they were born children of God. So we have a truly polarized view here. We have total depravity versus people born children of God. They are not depraved at birth and unable to relate and desire spiritual things, but they are innately the offspring of God and they are entitled to his throne and ear so long as they live up to their heritage. Often and admittedly, the end results are as polarized as the lives and actions of Debbie and Lucinda. In the Mormon Christian debate, the results can be very uh, difficult to explain. Here's why. You have the LDS church and you have its tenets. You have Joseph's vision and you have people who believe it and follow it. 
As a result, you have teenagers and you have families who are clean cut and they live outwardly, apparently outwardly good lives. They serve missions, they serve the community. They do all these things that from an appearance level and maybe even from their heart are good because they have been taught that they are good, okay? On the other hand, we have a, a sea of Christians who have been taught you are a sinner, and so often we see the Christian community, not all, there's, some, there's variances in each one, but in the Christian community, we've got guys who are you know, cheating, smoking, drinking, gone through hell, but they're praising Jesus. Tattoos, you know, we've got just a, kind of a rough, shod group, all based off the, the perspective that each has been taught. Here's the deal. Those who are accomplished and good and avoid the mistakes that come from possessing a low self-esteem before God are often the last to see their need for him. This is the heinous problem of Joseph Smith's theology. This is what it does. And so Jesus taught this in, in scripture. Do you remember? The, 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 the woman who was caught up in all kinds of sin and, and the other one, he gives the parable, and the other one has few sins, who will love him most? And the guy says, well, I suppose the one who is forgiven the most. And he says, that's right. So what we have here, while it is effective and while it works in this world as a model for living, and we look at it and we say, wow, that must be true, it's actually a counterfeit to what the real gospel is, and that is we're pretty screwed up. We have a lot of problems, and, but God came and saved us from them. Look to him, and you, you're fine. You see, and that's one of the heinous things when we compare the two. So by comparison, where Smith's approach creates what, a, what the world would say are far better products, Calvin's total dep depravity is closer to the mark, ultimately serving to bring more people to the throne than Joseph Smith. And this is the diabolical thing about what Joseph Smith introduced. In my opinion, when it comes to my old schoolmates becoming Christians, Lucinda and or Debbie, Lucinda stands a far, far better chance, uh, you know, because she knows what she is before God. She's probably reaped the uh, whirlwind for her actions in some way, uh, psychologically, emotionally, maybe physically, and that breaks you, and it makes you humble, and you go before your makeup. And yet, where Smith's ideas are certainly errant and do far more to keep people from the cross, uh, uh, Calvin's uh, approach, too, has faults. Uh, yes, all humankind is born spiritually dead. Yes, there's not one person on earth who would ever choose God over their own natural desires. Yes, the only reason anyone seeks God at all is because he calls us. But his call is constant, and it is to everybody, and he seeks to redeem all. The Calvinist position says his call is only to some, and that this specific call is what makes a person a Christian, and I would completely disagree. We're going to talk more about that next week when we go into the you of Calvinism. We're going to open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While the operators clear the calls, take a look.
Oh, during that little uh, respite, I was reading from the San Juan Record, the hometown newspaper of San Juan County, Utah, since 1915. If those of you who don't live in Utah aren't exposed to things like this. But in the back, there's a little article uh, from Terry Winder, who writes a, a, a column called Life in a Nutshell, a proper receptacle from what I'm reading, because uh, it says, Sometimes I wonder if we got to choose during our pre-mortal existence where on earth we would get sent to. That's how it begins. And so, you know, you're not a believer in Mormonism, but you pick up your local paper and you get to read stuff like that day in and day out. Does someone have a match? Because I cannot stand this, uh, and I live here now. One of the most amazing things about Mormonism is they have never been shy about supplying the world with answers to some of life's most troubling problems. Uh, when I was 12 years old, the prophet was a guy named Harold B. Lee. I really liked him, but I have learned now that he was really a piece of work. If you read David, the biography on David O. McKay, which was written by LDS people, old Harold B. Lee was a megalomaniac who caused all kinds of problems. But anyway, when I was 12, I thought he was the bomb. And he wrote a book called Decisions for Successful Living. And uh, as the LDS prophet, Listen to what this guy said. We have a graphic, I hope. The privilege of obtaining a mortal body on this earth is seemingly so priceless that those in the spirit world, even though unfaithful or not valiant, were undoubtedly permitted to take mortal bodies, although under penalty of racial or physical or nationalistic limitations. <laughs> Do you know what that's saying? That is saying that people who are born with what Lee calls racial limitations or people who are born with birth defects or physical or emotional or psychological or intellectual limitations or people born with what he called nationalistic limitations, which means you're not a, a white North American, I'm guessing, were born that way penalized because they were unfaithful and not valiant in the LDS fictional pre-mortal life. Uh, that is just, I, I've never read that. Uh, someone uh, posted that somewhere and it was sent to me. Imagine if you were a faithful to that old prophet at that time and you had a family that was just stellar and beautiful and your wife is pregnant and she gives birth to a child without a foot. That child, according to that, would be raised by the parents who automatically believed he was naughty in the pre-existence. Therefore, he's missing Mr. Foot. Uh, what's the biblical reason for this? First, how about the fall? How about, you know, the world fell into sin. We're full of all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on that was not part of the original plan. How about God allows all of us to be born for various issues? And, uh, and the physical uh, are, are just as taxing, as, or not as taxing sometimes as the others, or not as, as I don't know, or as more, I don't know. Uh, how about the most valiant souls uh, came from, uh, were born uh, with disabilities? How about that idea? That the people who struggle the most are the strongest, and the people who have everything are the weakest. Have we ever considered that point of view? Harold B. Lee is, I mean, these guys back in the 60s and 70s and the way they led, it was just like, I'm telling you, it was like, it was like the Third Reich. 
It was like, we are the, we are the blood. We are the truth. We are white Americans. We have happy families and money. No one else is good. They are bad from pre-existence. That was really how it was, and the vestiges of, those mentality, of that mentality continues on. Tank about it, people. Some emails from Jeff. Sean, I have walked away from being a Christian. Formerly used to call, write us. I went fully into what the Bible said and lost my job. Friends, retirement savings, family, neighbors, and even local churches hated me and called the police on me. <laughs> I don't know what this guy's been doing, but... Now, it typically doesn't happen when you become a Christian. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> this has brought me to serious depression of suicidal thoughts and mental illness. I am now free from the Bible and Christians and have the beginning of a new peace. Uh, bad religion sings, sings about atheist peace. And there's a truth to that, you know. There is a peace when you cut off religion from your life. It's true. You, uh, because religion produces sometimes angst about your life and your choices and what you're doing. So you can have an atheist piece. That's, it doesn't mean it's gonna pay off in the end at all. But he said, I started to realize that mind control is real and I was under a kind of curse of being a King James Version, born again, Bible-believing American Christian. Now being free, I'm driven to love others and love God with a clear mind without the need of written words. Christians, intellectual understandings, arguments. I believe that Christians are the worst example of an existing God if he really exists dwelling inside them. Wow. Sometimes you ever feel like that? I do. Sometimes you feel like, wow, Christians, sometimes you guys are really a bad example of, of, of a, a, a holding tank for God. I mean, is he really in there? Hello? Because it can be bad. I hope people understand that there are bigger cults than Mormonism out there, and they are called religions of all kinds, including the one I once called Ooh, this is tough, a relationship. Thank you for always responding to my emails. I know that you're a brother to me. Uh, I want you to know, Jeff, that you uh, have mistaken a relationship uh, with God with something that was cultic. You assumed that what Christianity was feeding you from wherever you were getting it was what it meant to be a Christian. And so you have, you've mixed those worlds and now you've associated your disappointment with the, the Christian world with your relationship. That's a mistake. Your, your relationship is founded on you and Jesus alone. It has nothing to do with this. It has nothing to do with what you do at church. It has nothing to do with what people say to you, how people treat you, how bad Christians can be or how good they can be. It has to do with you and your faith and trust in him. Don't let it get you down. Sean, I have listened to your programs at least once, some several times. I'm an inactive Mormon, but have intellectually come to believe the whole thing is untrue. The things you teach, I find myself in agreement with, except I cannot shake the feelings I experienced only in and through the church. I feel the feeling is like liquid love and profound peacefulness. I have, not, have not felt that since I left the church physically, if not emotionally. I know that you have taught on the subject, but I want to know why I cannot feel this when I hear you teach or in any other circumstance. I know you must get much email. I appreciate the response. It's a tough one, Joan. It's a tough one. All I can say is that the most potent feelings I ever have had have to do with the most emotionally or spiritually or physically charged connections 
uh, to things I was doing. They have nothing to do with knowing truth or representing truth. Uh, they come by the flesh, uh, really. I can't help but wonder if Mormonism's power is just supremely fleshly, based in emotions, charged with sensations the body can respond to most readily. I think this is what Joseph Smith brought to the, uh, to the table, to tell you the truth. Women would say, upon meeting him, uh, they would describe this electricity that shot through their body when he would look at them or shake, their, shake his hand. And, you know, um, in the world of sin, the more uh, illicit things are, the more charged they are. If you have an illicit, adulterous affair, that, uh, that experience is highly charged. You will feel all kinds of very powerful things in that, uh, you know, but it doesn't mean it's good, and it doesn't mean it's true. All militaries, you know, they have preyed upon the use of music. They have preyed upon the use of power, powerful orators to get people to feel. Remember, I don't know who it was. I thought it was Eichmann. It says, you don't know Hitler through your mind. You know him through your heart, through what you feel. Uh, and I've said this before. If you listen to Het James Hetfield and Metallica, every concert, he's always saying, how do you feel? How are you feeling right now? And the music gets everybody to feel. And I think it's just an inferior way of knowing God. So uh, God works through a still small voice to open eyes, see, ears to hear. His truth resonates to the mind with clarity and certainly with, a, with assurance that you don't necessarily feel, but it's more like you understand, you know? It's like if, you're, if your mom calls, you've been worried about her coming to pick you up at school all day long, and she calls and says, I'm coming, I'm sorry, I'm late. You might feel something, but it's the information that comforts you, and you have a, have a response to it. So it's the information, and I know I'm not really doing it justice, but that's the best I can do with it. Finally, over the years, we've had a lot of stuff. I guess we don't have any calls, or yeah, we're unpopular now. Over the years, I've had a lot of stuff uh, about the LDS being associated with Satanism. Lots of different emails and claims. And a few years ago, a girl wrote, and uh, she's from this area, born and raised, and uh, she said, can you meet me? So she just wrote. I hadn't heard from her in years. I met with you a couple of years ago at Beans and Brew on 33rd South. I don't know if you remember, I was involved as a kid in the occult part of the LDS church. Now understand, uh, cultism is not taught and practiced uh, from the pulpit. Mormons don't do these kinds of things, but their doctrine will lead to these kinds of practices to those people who take things further. Listen to what she says. My biological mother was involved in a self-fulfilling workshop called LifeSpring. This was back in 1981-ish. From there, she turned into her own God and found many people in the church who helped her, taught her, instructed, and led her in the ways to hide under the guise of the LDS church. It was easy to hide there because all of the pretending that goes on every single Sunday in the LDS church that uh, I have ever been to. As long as you can speak the lingo, wear the clothing, the proper hairstyle and length and smile, you were golden. The people that she allowed into her life were so self fulfilling people were also self-fulfilling people who decided that they wanted to be their own God as well. The crazy thing is that it evolved quite quickly into satanic worship. And the group called itself Coven of the Dark One. 
It went from people who wanted to worship themselves to grown-ups who took advantage of each other, and then they brought children into it. She was one of them. They were bishops, high priests, relief society members, etc., plus non-members among others. Drugs and alcohol were involved almost from the beginning. I recall getting a needle between the two middle toes when I would fight doing what they were telling me to do. Then I would be forced to relax and would become pliable. Some people do not believe that sacrifice still goes on in the USA. And by sacrifice, I mean the human variety. When I was younger, much younger, I was made to take part in such things. I had to be drugged, uh, drunk, and they used the incentive of pain. It is now 28 years later, and I've been LDS for a long time. I believe and bought into the fact that Jesus' blood covered all sins except murder and deny the Holy Ghost. I thought I was not forgiven. I thought God was not able to forgive me, and, if, and that he, in fact, he hated me, and he would not want me as his daughter. I pray for God to love me. I pray to be clean with God. I pray with all my heart in thanksgiving for the Lord on the cross and his blood shed for me. I tell God I am sorry my sins put him on the cross. I want to be him to be in my heart, but because I have believed in one way for so long, it is so difficult to let self true good feelings come out. Stuff, stuff, we get, we get them quite often, but this one was especially uh, forthright with this stuff. I can't validate or say whether it's true or not, but it's certainly disturbing and it all kind of fits in with what could possibly go on when you have a false theology. We're gonna go on Vicki, Flagstaff, Arizona, our first, last, and only call of the night. Vicki, what's happening? Hey, Sean, um, I am Aaron T's wife from Flagstaff. Hello. Hi, I just wanted to call and tell you how much your show means to us. Um, you know, being born and raised LDS, both my husband and I, it has meant a lot to have somebody who's been through it all there to help us and witness uh, to us as our, we went on our journey. So I wanted to thank you for that and just say, we'll keep watching and thank you. So. Thank you, Vicki. And tell Aaron hi for us. I will. You have a good night. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. We're going to wrap it up next week. We're going to take uh, more emails. Hopefully you will call if you have answer or questions or answers. And we're going to hit the U of the tulip. So we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.